a topic called Embracing the Baptism of Suffering. Now, this is not a, an easy topic to talk on, and uh, I sort of don't enjoy, on the one hand, talking about suffering. I mean, not many of us do, do we? But at the same time, it's a reality. And as you will see, as I want to go through this little teaching this morning, it's a means whereby God uses that suffering to accelerate our growth in Christ-likeness. And uh, in the Bible, there are a number of different baptisms, you might say. You might think, well, baptism is just the baptism in water and maybe the baptism in the Spirit. But baptisms of suffering? Well, let's just have a quick look at the context. <clears throat> Sorry, clicked too hard. Let's go back. There we go. So this is the sort of key scripture which talks about a plurality of baptisms. It's from Hebrews 6, as you can see. And, and there, the, the writer to the Hebrews is talking about, let's move on from our immaturity and not have to keep on laying the basics, the foundations, one of which, as you can see, I've underlined and bolded out instruction about baptisms. Now, there's a number of things. There's the... the um, the repentance from acts of dead works, faith in God, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. But the one I want to focus upon this morning is the, baptism, the uh, teachings about instruction about baptisms. Now you might think, well, what's that got to do with suffering? Well, as you'll see, there are a number of baptisms in the Bible. In fact, there's about seven, two of which don't really apply to us. It's the baptism of Moses, as Old Testament, and the baptisms for those who have died which again you find in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's not necessarily for us either. I won't go into the theology of that today. I could if you want me to, but I'm not going to bore you with that. But the baptisms I want to focus upon is just one, but I want to see it in the, in the context of this plurality of baptisms. Here they come. The baptism in water, that's the obvious one. We all understand that. That's what most of us, if not all of us, have received and experienced. Many of us have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then there's the baptism with fire, and then the baptism into Christ, baptisms into the church's body, and baptism into suffering. There's the six baptisms that you can find in the Bible, of which every Christian should, at least to some degree, experience and, and immerse themselves within. Now, water baptism, of course, is the symbol of immersion and burial that sets us up to understand what it means by the word baptism. And so, there you see the well-known scripture in Romans 6, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there you see the symbolic act of baptism. What, is it, what does baptism do? It immerses somebody underneath the substance. In this case, it's water. Although some friends of mine who were, were Christians out in the Sahara Desert, they dig a big hole in the sand and cover the person with the sand temporarily and then bring them back up again. In other words, they're immersed into something. Other people with no sand or no water, they get a big blanket and put it over the person, and then they take the blanket off, meaning that baptism sim simply means to immerse into. In fact, it's a naval word in the Greek language and was used to basically sink a ship or drown a ship or destroy a ship. Let's go and baptize this old wreck of a ship. And if we've got an insurance policy on it, so much the better. <laughs> so it was used to actually bury something. 
And physically, from the perspective of water baptism, we actually go down under the water and symbolizing a burial, and then when we come back up, we come up into resurrection night. So water baptism, you could say, is the symbol. It's the setup of the meaning of the word to baptize. I'm not going to dwell on that because we're not talking about water baptism today, of course. So it's the glorious initiation ordinance for born-again disciples and cuts them off from and buries their former world and brings them into the newness of resurrected life. That's what we all understand when we've gone through the waters of baptism. But once this initial baptism has occurred, the Lord invites us to immerse into the remaining five baptisms. Let's have a look at them in a little bit more detail before we spend the majority of our time on the baptism into suffering. So here's the other uh, first two after, the, after water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire. Here's the scripture, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals are not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, looking at the word immerse, overwhelm with, be surrounded by, be engulfed with, be, as it were, enveloped by, putting all those kind of words onto Holy Spirit and fire, you're getting the picture. But getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, we are to be enveloped by, infused by, empowered by, overwhelmed with, taken over by the Holy Spirit, and with fire. And I think the fire refers to power, refers to the capacity to, to burn up and to illuminate and to bring life to. And so I think it, believe, it speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, the, the ministry power that God gives us when we are immersed into the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's have a look at the next one. This is baptism into Christ in the Scripture. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So again, looking at that word immerse, we are to be immersed into the very heart and grace and nature of Jesus Christ. And when that happens to us, something transforms on the inside, isn't it? If you've been immersed into Jesus, you can't be the same again, can you? Anything of the old nature, anything of sin, everything of old Adam has got to die. It's got to give way to this immersion that I've been placed into in terms of the power of Christ. We are being clothed with Christ. We're putting him on. We're covering these ugly other things with Christ. And he becomes the one who everybody else sees because we're clothed with Christ. And then moving forward, this is the fifth one. Baptism into the body, the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there again, we're immersed into when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you join the church, you are baptized into the body of Christ. You come into a people. You are surrounded by a people. You do life together with a people. You are one with a people. You love this people. You put up with this people. You rejoice with this people. You travel together with this people. They are your kith and kin. They are your soulmates. They are the ones you do life with. They are the ones you die with, and they are the ones you will inhabit glory with. That's what it means to be baptized into the body of Christ. So can you see, once you've experienced these baptisms, it's going to be radically different for our lives. 
Because you can't be the same again if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit or with fire or into Christ or into his body. You're transformed. The churches get transformed because when everybody's been immersed into these things and surrounded by them, then there's power and transformation at a level we can't even begin to imagine. Every one of the baptisms mentioned involves, however, a death and a new life. And this is only brought about by an immersion into, uh, which causes a spiritual drowning and eventually a spiritual dawning. I want you to catch those two phrases. When we are baptized or immersed into any of those, it involves a spiritual drowning and a spiritual dawning. Drowning in the sense that you're putting to death that which will prevent you from being like Christ, from being empowered by the Holy Spirit, from loving your brothers and sisters. You drown that which would threaten that. And you are coming into a new place, a new dawn, as it were, of starting. And so I want us to bear that in mind as we come very shortly now to our theme. So to immerse, as I said, means actually to embrace and become overwhelmed with those baptisms and what they involve. So regarding suffering, we are called to endure the experience by faith and proactively engage with the Lord in the midst of it to allow it to bring about a death and a new life in our souls. That's the whole point of suffering, is to bring about a death and a new life, just like all the other baptisms were. Because even in water baptism, you symbolizes the fact that you've been dead in Christ because of the cross, because you repented, because you received faith. You're now dead to your trespasses and sins and made alive in Jesus. So baptism is a symbol of burying that which has been cut off and then coming out of the water into a resurrection life. Can you see that? And so that's what baptism is all about. So every one of them means we enter into a death and come into a new life. And that's the hope of suffering. Suffering as a, a purpose, you might say, and it might seem crazy when you're going through it. There's no purpose in this. What purpose can come out of it? I don't know if you've ever seen uh, some of these video clips of Nick Vicek. Does that ring a bell with anybody, Nick Vicek? Nick Vicek is a guy who is born with no arms and no legs, and, uh, and he is a Christian. And he is the most inspirational, motivational speaker you could imagine. And he demonstrates how when he falls over, how he can get back up with no arms and no legs. And he's an inspiration because he's embraced the death of suffering and come into the new life that suffering can bring. And has he been healed? No. Will he get healed? He might do. But in some ways, he doesn't mind because he's found something through the experience, through the baptism into suffering that has caused a new life in a dimension that is now he's known worldwide. And he's encouraged and brought hope to millions of people because of his suffering. We think of Joni Erickson. Remember Joni Erickson who died, who had a uh, paralyzed from the neck down through an accident? Well, she has been an inspiration to millions as well. In fact, she's got cancer, she was telling me recently. And she's still rejoicing in God. Is it a purpose to it? Yes, there is. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't. And yet, God uses it to bring something, somebody into a new life that is more powerful than if they hadn't had the suffering. And that's the amazing thing about it. And so here's the, the baptism into suffering. 
scriptures here. Luke 12, 50, says Jesus speaking to his disciples, but I have a baptism of suffering to go through, and I must go through it. So then you see in another passage in Mark 10, the disciples asking, I wonder which one of us is the greatest. So they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, uh, we would like to ask you a question. What would you like to say, Jesus says? We would like to ask you, can we sit next to you in glory in heaven? In other words, can we take the highest seats next to you? So we are the kiddies next to Jesus, you know? And Jesus says this. He says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will go through the baptism I go through. What was he saying there? If you want to be great, you have to go through the pathway. You have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You have to embrace something that gets rid of that stuff that prevents you from being there. You have to experience a baptism that takes you from this place to that place, and there's no other way to get there than through that suffering. And I want you to understand and begin to appreciate that while we hate it, and while we resist it, and while we pray against it, sometimes God uses it for a greater purpose and a greater glory. And Jesus, of course, is our arch example of one who suffered in order for us to receive something that only suffering could have brought about. So Jesus immersed himself into suffering when on the cross he was motivated by a great love for us and took our curse upon himself. You see, when Jesus hung upon that cross, and we are coming up to the Easter story, aren't we, in a week's time, when he hung upon that cross, he was cursed by his father. Do you know that? A curse came upon him. And that curse was your sin and mine. He laid, God laid, the father laid the sin of you and me upon him. And that sin cursed Jesus. He took your curse. Why? So that you could receive his blessing. Scripture says in Galatians, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. And often you see that in, in the midst of suffering, when something terrible is coming upon us, it's coming, it's often used by God to bring about an amazing, vicarious outcome, you might say. The word vicarious means to suffer on behalf of somebody else so that a greater outcome can come on the back of it. And Jesus was a classic, vicarious sacrifice. She so was telling me that she heard uh, Chris Vallotton talk the other day. And he's talking about the man who was born blind. And Jesus uses spit and makes a paste and pastes it on his eyes. And he washes and he can see. You know the story? And Chris brings out in his teaching that blind people who were born blind were considered to be cursed. And that's why they were blind. And so in order to illustrate the fact that they were cursed, everyone who was a Jew would come on and spit on the person. And the spitting of the one, the person would say, you're cursed, you get to be spit. And here's Jesus using the very curse to bring about sight in the spittle, yeah? And so even in that little story there, you see an illustration of the fact that suffering produces hope in the end. Or, 
that which seems to be negative and terrible and awful, like a curse, can actually bring a blessing. Why? Because Jesus took your sinfulness and gave you his righteousness. He took your curse and he gave you his blessing. He took your death and he gave you his life. He took your shame to give you his glory. He took your rejection to give you his acceptance. He took your punishment to give you his forgiveness. He took your sickness to give you his health. He took your poverty to give you his riches. They are the elements of the divine exchange. And there's scriptures to support every single one of them. But that would be a different preach. But the point is that Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his suffering, created immense blessing for you and for me. Amen? <clears throat> As I said, it had a strongly vicarious outcome. Our salvation and his exaltation. Have a look at some of these. Overstep, there you go. The vicarious outcomes of Christ's suffering. Here's a few scriptures to illustrate this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see the, the outcome of suffering there? Same here, look. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Vicarious sacrifice. Here's another one. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, a sacrifice, a suffering price. So as a response to that, we've been given grace to glorify God with our body and everything about us. And my last one, Philippians 2, 8 to 10. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it goes on to finish the sentence. But the point I'm trying to bring is that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. He embraced a baptism of suffering. Can you see that? And his baptism of suffering was the key, the catalyst that released our salvation. And as you've seen there, his exaltation. But it came at a great price. He was the Son of God. He was equal with God. He was the second person of the Trinity. But here he is laying his life down. And what was that meekness that he displayed? What was the price that he paid? Here comes my last slide. What conditions, hard conditions, enable Jesus to do this? This is the passages before that last one I showed you. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So let me have a look now. Let's unpick this little passage here to find out what heart conditions that were in Jesus that we ought to emulate that enabled him to do what he did. Here we go. The first thing is this scripture here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So you might be thinking, well, what mind was that? <laughs> what mind was in Christ Jesus that I, according to Paul, ought to have as well? I'm asking you and me today, what mind ought we to have as Christians who claim to make Jesus the Lord of our lives? Here we go. A. Let each esteem others better than himself. That's the first one. So our, if we are going to be like Jesus, we ought to esteem or consider others better than ourselves. That's not easy if you carry a bit of a self-righteous pride. It's not easy if you've been used to being the kingpin, maybe in your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, if we carry any pride, we'll balk at that. We'll prickle at that. I, I can't. Him? Her? Better than me? No way. I was educated in Sailly House School. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in, didn't I? <clears throat> and this pride stuff has got to die if we're going to be like Jesus. It's got to die. Now, it's almost impossible to get rid of it, apart from him, of course. But in him, we can get rid of it if we desire to. But if at this point in time you're thinking, oh, I know about that. You know, I, I don't mind being a Christian and yeah, I'll come on to this church, but don't get too serious. Don't get too extreme here. You know, I, I'm, I'm an educated man. I, I got a job that people, I got a lot of people under me. And I consider myself to be a, a man or a woman of nobility. I can't look at everybody and see them as better than themselves. But hang on a minute. Jesus looked at you and thought you were better than him. That's the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who saw you as better than him. Who saw the tramp walking down the street as better than him. It's convicting, isn't it? When I saw this, it blew my stack, I tell you. I really had to repent of attitudes in my heart. Because I couldn't say that in all in honesty. Because there was something of pride still left in me. What about the other one? That was the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, you might be thinking, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give it to charity. I'll give my collection. I'll even give a tithe. But I don't want too much more. You know, that's enough. But no, the heart of Christ wants us to look to one another's interests before our own. We are concerned about people. I'm convicting myself terribly as I preach, honestly. We are concerned for people because compassion is one of my lowest areas. If you look at the lists of gifts in, in Romans 12, it talks about teacher, being prophetic, you know, serving, giving, uh, administration, so on. Compassion, seventh in my list. So it doesn't come to me naturally. She was top of the list, praise God, eh? So she's my discipler in this area. And she causes me to start seeing other people through the eyes of Jesus. 
So I'm challenged by this. But by the grace of God, I'm making some progress in the area. But how about yourself? Do you easily look to the interests of other people, or are you just in it for you, Jack? That's challenging, isn't it? But that was the mind that was in Christ Jesus. See, he made him... Sorry, I've got a few... This click is a bit too fast. <laughs> but he made himself of no reputation. <laughs> it gets even worse, doesn't it? If, if you're squirming in the flesh, you're squirming even more now. Because any reputation we carry because of our backgrounds and so on, I have to die. They're of no value. In fact, Paul says in this scripture, in, uh, in, the, in the passage, I think it's either the one before or after this one, he says, I consider my own righteousness as filthy rags, or, or as dung, the literal translation says, of refuse, of no value. And he had a righteousness that was supreme. You know, he was trained in the Gamaliel, one of the best uh, disciples of the day. He was a Pharisee. He was, according to the Lord, he was perfect. He had all that reputation. He had to die to it. And Jesus died to his reputation as being the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's the other mind that we need to embrace. And then the deed, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming like a slave. So he washed the disciples' feet, which was the lowliest act of the lowliest servant in the household, and said, you've got to be the same. And then coming in the likeness of men, coming from being God to being a human being. Not only human being, but the last one, humbled himself and being obedient to the point of death. Can you see, if you start seeing where Jesus started from, being the Son of God in heaven, to being allowing men to crucify him on the earth, he embraced all of that suffering, all of those steps down, you could say, his humiliation, in order to receive an exaltation that gave him the name above all names. And I hope you're beginning to see the principle I'm laying out here, that when we embrace, when we immerse into suffering, something wonderful comes on the back of it. Because to be honest with you, not many of those things are possible unless Jesus does some dealings inside our hearts. You can't get rid of them, as I said earlier. Unless Jesus does some dealings in your heart. And those dealings will come in all sorts of different ways of suffering, often. And sometimes it's painful. And sometimes you'll react to your brothers and sisters who can't just disagree with you, or whatever it is. And the temptation is to go off in a half. But we must embrace, we must immerse. I must get, all right, let me get back into the baptism tub and this suffering business. Because I wanted to put, I want the, the, this, this incident to put to death that ugliness in my soul, so I can be like Jesus and have the same mind as him. That's the whole point of suffering. So suffering can come in many forms. Sickness, mental health issues, divorce, rejections, bereavement, financial loss. All of these things which we hate because we love to live our lives in a state of equilibrium. We don't want anything to ruffle that. We don't want any disrupting things coming. And yeah, the Lord loves us to live like that for most of our lives. But there are times when he's got to take us deeper and to into those things to make us the kind of men and women that he can build upon. And so he allows these things to come. He never sends sickness or, or divorce and things like that. Of course he doesn't. 
But he uses those situations in order to deepen us. And I want to see myself, and I speak to myself first, and yourselves. When we go through suffering, start to see it in the nature that Jesus illustrates to us by being vicarious. For many of us, it involves, however, embracing a deeper immersion into the nitty-gritty of relationships that are around you. So maybe you can breathe a sigh of relief. No, he may not use sickness to you. He may not use uh, mental health situations or a divorce or a loss of a job or whatever. But you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to use relationships. And sometimes relationships are the very means that he uses to cause us to go deeper. I used to live, as I've told you before, in an all-things-in-common Christian community. We lived with another 40 or 50 people at one time in an ex-three-star hotel when we were in our 20s, long time ago. It's a bit crazy, as you can imagine. But I learned such a lesson then. I learned that God used relationships to cause me to grow, to deal with those things that stopped me having the mind of Christ, that caused me to become the man of God that God wants me to become. And he continues to use relationships even to this day. You know, even in our marriages or our family home, when everybody else is gone because you closed the door, or maybe in your church or even in your workplace, God uses relationships to disciple us, to make us more like Jesus. So you, God uses these things to become a great grace in our lives, to help us deal with selfishness and other kinds of fleshly reactions. You know, Sue and I are like chalk and cheese, as I just illustrated. Compassion, bottom, Sue, top. Leadership, bottom, leadership, top. And so in, in everything, I like mountains, she likes shops. Okay? I like walking, she watches TV. <laughs> I'm a doer, she's a beer. So in every facet of our lives, we're the opposite. <laughs> and it takes a lot of grace sometimes for her and for me to do life, and yet we just celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary. So we've managed to endure the suffering. <laughs> and we're all laughing because you're identifying with it, aren't we, really? I mean, okay, some of you got perfect marriages, but uh, most of us have to put up with the fact that we're different from one another, and we have our idiosyncrasies that get up our nose, and which irritate us. And yet so many times throughout my life, I've, even though I reacted at first, I must confess, and said something I regret later and had to apologize for. But afterwards, I come into a place where I've grown in that area. And I'm, I'm more like Jesus in that area. And I'm softer in that area. And I'm more sensitive in that area. I'm more compassionate in that area. And yes, of course, I'm a work in progress. Of course, I've got miles to go. But I'm further now towards those goals that I was before, simply because of my amazing wife, who disciples me through being me getting irritated with some of the things that she does and says. She wants to be the last out of church. I'm usually the first out. Things, do you know what I mean? Because she's, she's very heavily relational. And I'm much more task-oriented. She's a people person. I'm a task-oriented person. So, so these things, and, and, you know, in the world, guess what would have happened? We probably wouldn't be together, would we? 
And so many people end up in divorcing simply because the relationship is creating so much suffering that they can't stand it anymore. And I can, you know, I can fully empathize if there's abuse involved and adultery and all that stuff. Absolutely. I'm not in any way pouring any condemnation on anyone who's been divorced or is getting divorced because of these uglier things. There are ugly things which are basically, you know, maybe unresolvable. I, I understand that. But the situations I'm talking about are completely resolvable. They just become irritable, that's all. And so God uses these things because he uses suffering to cause us to become more like him. Carnality in our lives is expressed in these relationships. The temptation, as I said, is to run away from the relationships around us. But this is the means by which God is changing you into his image. So you might be in this church and you might be thinking, you know, I don't know if I can handle yet another cell group or home group. I don't know if I can put up with these people. That they disagree with me all the time. They're always having a go at me. They're always, you know, they're just too nice. Or whatever it might be. And we're thinking about moving on somewhere. Now again, there's a place for moving on. I'm not saying you should never move on. But I'm saying that check his heart. Is God using those relationships as a means to you to embrace, be baptized into suffering in order for you to come into a greater place of victory? We could go on in many examples here, can't we? You could say mentors and tormentors do the same job. <laughs> a mentor obviously works with you to change you, but a tormentor also works with you to change you. <laughs> We need to immerse into suffering. When we hide away from suffering, we hide away from God's transformative grace. We need to allow the dealings of God to come to us through others, and then we can become like Christ. Suffering has the greatest power to produce Christ-likeness within you. And Sue suffers a lot with her physical body, she has uh, fibromyalgia. You don't mind me sharing this, love? She has uh, bad joints in her knees and her hips. She has to walk with sticks. She's in pain virtually the whole time. But I'll tell you, in the last, what, six months, I've seen a change in her. Not that her physical body is getting any better, but her spirit is soaring with God. She's beginning to do just as the songs we sang said. She's beginning to let the praises roar in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the storm, louder and louder. And she said to me, she says, all I want to do is keep become more like Jesus. All I want to do is praise him in the midst of my suffering. All I want to do is start to shine for his glory. And I'm seeing something in there which is inspirational. And the family, my kids and the grandkids, are looking upon her with amazement because they, they've seen her with all these problems, and yet she's praising God. Yet she's full of joy, yet she's full of the Spirit. The suffering has had a vicarious effect. It's beginning to affect other people's lives. Now, suffering can have a vicarious effect in a neg negative sense as well. If we're miserable, if we are aggressive, if we are self-righteous, if we are critical, if we are gossipy, if we are moany and groany and grisly, then that vicarious effect is negative. It causes people to want to go away from you. So why don't we start saying, despite my situation, despite my mental ill health, despite my physical problems, despite my relationship issues, I'm going to praise God in the middle of the storm. 
I'm going to become louder and louder because I'm going to make Jesus the Lord in this situation, not self. And I'm going to become a man, a woman who shines with the grace and the glory of Almighty God. Amen? That's the call of God to our hearts. And my final question to us, two questions. Will you, Martin, will you immerse and allow these issues, these sufferings to change you? Or will I stubbornly cling to my excuses, my justifications, or my reasonings? Let's pray together.